Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Hello, and welcome to PetroNerds Podcast, episode number 24, with me, Ethan Bellamy. Trisha Curtis, the CEO of PetroNerds. We have a special guest today, Justin Kringstad who Trisha will talk a little bit about in a second. Uh, it is Tuesday, August 3rd, 2021 in the afternoon. We're going to talk about oil prices. We're going to talk about the Continental Resources call, which is salient for both the Bakken and their, their calls this morning. We'll talk about oil prices in North Dakota, Williston Basin, production, productivity, probably there are some fancy acronyms like GOR around. Uh, and then we'll talk about North Dakota pipelines. Oil, gas, NGLs, transportation, Dakota access, but we won't get political. So we'll 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 save Justin for that. So uh, take it away, Trisha. Awesome. Well, um, I'm really excited about this podcast. You guys know that uh, Ethan and I talk a lot about. We've talked a lot about the Dakota Access Pipeline. We've talked. We've we've dropped Justin's name a few times in this podcast. Ethan knows has known Justin from way back when. I think before we just were talking before I met him. Uh, but Justin Kringstad is um, with the North Dakota Pipeline Authority. And unfortunately, this is not the podcast where we're going to let you talk about your background and where you went to school and, you know, all that thing for 30 minutes. If you want to do that, you got to go and check Gates podcast. Uh, but this because we're content driven in here. So we while we're very impressed with your background, um, Justin is with the North Dakota Pipeline Authority. So if you want to say anything additional about the North Dakota Pipeline Authority and essentially what it is, folks probably don't truthfully uh, may not understand what exactly is the North Dakota Pipeline Authority because it it essentially is Justin and you know the I know in your website on the North Dakota Pipeline Authority website you produce you have uh, you know the transportation table you have all the information out there you have really good webinars and presentations which you now have a recording to and I was just listening to your last one so tons of data tons of information you know there's really no excuse not to I mean if you're trying to dig into the Wilson Basin there's no excuse not to have sort of up-to-date production data, which we'll get into because you provide it really well. So do you want to add anything to that before I start slamming and diving on oil prices and everything? Yeah. So just uh, thank you for that introduction. Uh, this is uh, uh, thankful for the invite to, to join you guys today. And so, yeah, the, the Pipeline Authority is unique. Um, it is a state government agency, but it's 100% non-regulatory. So my day-to-day -day is on the business development, facilitating, uh, trying to get good, reliable market information production forecasts, market conditions, and trying to have, uh, again, a good, reliable set of data for those decision makers in the midstream industry to make timely decisions. We know that time is of the essence. Um, when, when this agency was created back in 2007, they already knew that transportation and logistics were going to be a major constraint for the Bakken. They were absolutely right. Um, at that time, no one had any idea the scale that we were going to grow into. Um, you know, again, uh, I've been in this role since 2008. Uh, the month I took over, it was 177,000 barrels of oil production per day in North Dakota. And so really kind of grown into the role. And uh, so again, anything you see out there um, probably came from, from my hands. But uh, if, you, if you love it, hate it, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me. There's usually a lot of information behind the scenes as well. And, and awesome. before Trisha takes over, what was the genesis of the Pipeline Authority? Because as far as I know, there's no te Texas Pipeline Authority. There's no New Mexico Pipeline Authority. It's very unique, unique sort of uh, organization that the the state spun up. 
Yeah, so so North Dakota was not the first. Wyoming had a pipeline authority before North Dakota oh, did. Oh, right, right. And so uh, natural gas was the big constraint in Wyoming. Uh, and so th- there are a, a tremendous amount of options under the, the pipeline authority. So the pipeline authority is part of the industrial commission. So our governor, attorney general, ag commissioner, uh, in our uh, statute, you can issue bonds, participate in projects. We, you know, again, uh, the whole list is on the table for ways that the state could get involved if necessary. We've not gone down any of those roads. There's been a tremendous amount of, of private uh, investments and, and those capabilities able to handle uh, the situation thus far, but those are always in the tool belt if necessary in the future. And as we look at, again, uh, developing projects as well, whether it's CO2, hydrogen stuff, there's, there's a tem- tremendous amount of opportunity still on the table. And no um, diss to the Wyoming Pipeline Authority, but it is very different. I mean, I, 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 I don't know, that, and at least I haven't checked it recently, but I don't know that the Wyoming Pipeline Authority sort of provides the level of detail and insights that Justin provides on a, on a regular basis, at least when I was working, when, at least when I had uh, previous experiences and, and going to Wyoming and speaking stuff. It, it exists and it's there. I don't think it quite functions the same way that the North Dakota Pipeline Authority does. Right, and the uh, and Wyoming has been a producer for a lot longer than uh, than North Dakota, so a lot of the infrastructure was baked in. Right, and then right. Uh, Wyoming, the Wyoming Pipeline Authority, if I remember correctly, had its heyday back when we had double digit natural gas prices and yep. six and seven dollar per MMBTU differentials trying to get out of the Rockies, and with wrecks and excess capacity, that's certainly no longer yep. an issue for Wyoming. Hundred percent. It was it was more about gas. Uh, I think I'll I think I'll switch this back a little bit to going back in history because I think this perspective of when Justin started at 170,000 barrels a day and I really think that's when I start I cut my teeth on US unconventional oil and particularly on the Bakken and I think that's how I I think I cold called Justin um, when I was working in DC and bugged him a lot because I was really interested in the Bakken and wanted to talk to him about information so we hadn't met for we met years down the road I think in like Medora at a at an event um, but we had been talking on the phone forever and and sharing data and information and intel. But I remember it being, I mean, it was a big deal. I was helping companies, you know, folks on our board and stuff get crewed by rail before it was even a thing of moving Bakken crew to the East Coast. But I think the just thinking back to that impetus, I mean, North Dakota was so far from market, just like the Canadian oil sands, and it competed for pipeline space with the Canadian oil sands, and they were both sort of growing in production around 2010, 2011, and, and it was something completely new. Folks in D.C. had no idea what was happening in North Dakota. It was it was so far out of their purview, and it was a new major production center, and they weren't aware that it was going to grow as fast as it did, and it didn't have the it didn't have pipelines in place, certainly not pipelines to get to any major coastal refinery. And so it had this, you know, was always, always, you know, strangled by a discount um, for transportation. And that is what I think is the coolest thing today. And something I'm pretty bullish, watching my cousin here, I'm pretty bullish on North Dakota and the Wilson Basin in general, because of where oil prices are at, even though we've had some backsliding, because folks are quite concerned about the Delta variant and Chinese economy. But let's just say we're around $70 WTI right now. And we do not have today any major pipeline constraints right now out of the Wilson Basin, which means you've got a green light for production growth and activity in North Dakota. And that's sort of in, in the Wilson Basin more broadly. But that's sort of where I'd like to take this is given where, you know, uh, given where production is about one to 1.1 million barrels per day, right, in the Wilson Basin. And, you know, we're, we haven't, we didn't add a ton of wells in 2020. So obviously production came down. There were a lot of wells that were shut in during 2020. A lot of those come, came back. 
But listening to the Continental Earnings call this morning, they were also quite bullish as well. I mean, they're running, you know, quadruple the rigs that anyone else is running. They're running eight rigs. They're looking to add a ninth rig in the Bakken. Uh, obviously, they're bullish on oil. They're on oil prices. They're bullish on oil. They're bull- bullish on the macro. Um, and they're certainly bullish on the Wilson Basin. And I think without these pipeline constraints, they should be. But Justin and Ethan, do you have any thought? Did you have any, you know, any thoughts on that call in particular? I thought that the the color and commentary on wells being six point, you know, low six millions was really important as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I listened in on that call as well. And so I've all week this week, you can get on your calendar and, and stack them up of all the big Bakken players um, having their earnings calls. And so we heard from Hess late July, they're going to be adding a rig as well. You heard Continental uh, potentially add another rig here uh, late this year. And so that is encouraging. When you look at the disconnect right now between where prices are, and where the rig count and activity levels are in North Dakota, it's, it's a massive disconnect. It's not an unexpected disconnect, but uh, I think the severity of it is something that we're, we're certainly not used to. And um, that's that's one of the biggest challenges we're having right now is trying to understand how long is this disconnect going to continue? When does that delta start to shrink between where the prices and activity levels start to come back together again? And so it is encouraging. So I'll be watching uh, extremely closely the rest of this week to see if we see any other operators uh, discuss picking up rigs in the basin. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this, we have another handful of rigs that we see coming into the basin here by the end of the year. And I mean, I think it's, I think it's a, kind of a, the old story of that it's still, it is definitely still competing with the Permian. Uh, I think that, you know, 2014 actually did a big report with Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, and it was on when things were collapsing and crashing and, and folks coming out of it. And it, people had a really hard time understanding what was taking place then of, of that folks held their acreage in North Dakota and in the Wilson Basin more broadly. So you didn't have the impetus to sort of hold that acreage and, and the need to drill. And I think that's, that's a, still a piece of of what's taking place today, but it's also that folks are just now getting their bearings of prices are good and we we have the pipeline capacity. I do did want to know, I think Inveris is showing 21 rigs for North Dakota or for the Wilson Basin. You're showing, I think, 22 with one rig that's not necessarily dedicated to, to oil. And I think I've heard as many as 15 frac, frac fleets are running. And that that's a very, very high number and a pretty narrow, that's a pretty narrow difference between frac spreads and um, and rigs running right now. Right. Yep. Absolutely. So you're spot on on the rig counts, and again, we've got some data issues. They're turning over a whole database for the state of North Dakota on the oil and gas sites. You'll be able to see some updated information here in the next couple of weeks. But, uh, but yeah, 22. 23 drilling rigs still consistent. Frat crew numbers, we don't have as much clarity on that uh, here in the state, but uh, the numbers I've been hearing are, yeah, the, the low teens, uh, and and we can discuss this later. I know you've covered in the podcast before, but I mean, what is that good metric, right? It's, it's really easy to look at spuds and rig counts and start to get efficiency metrics on the actual drilling uh, pace out there. That one missing piece of the pie and why it's so critical for North Dakota is we have a, uh, we've built up over the years, uh, this continual rolling fleet of, of duck wells. And so to, to better understand, you know, what can 15 frat crews do, right? Is is five completions a month a good metric with uh, simul fracks? Is it higher than that? Are we looking at seven or eight uh, wells per per crew per month? And so, I mean, that is those are meaningful changes. Um, and so those are the things we're trying to bake in right now and understand in greater detail. Yeah, I, I personally think this is the, and I, I know Ethan may have some comments on this as well, but I, we talked about in the past previous podcast that, and we'll, we'll be getting into it in the next ones on when we talk about the earnings for, for service companies, Liberty just had theirs. 
nobody is really actually giving a lot of color on what's the the amount of frack fleets that are out there, whether they're fully dedicated. I know that that uh, Liberty did note note that in their last earnings call of whether or not these wells or these frack fleets are fully dedicated. Uh, I wouldn't say. I mean, that was what I heard that there were 15 running in North or in the Wilson Basin. Seems extremely high, but it also seems like this is very much a function of this sort of post-COVID, you know, wonkiness that we see in the market. And that's that. You know, I, I, the exact number for ducks. You know, sometimes ducks. We used to look at it as this function of the built-up inventory, and now, and Continental's actually referenced it in in several, you know, in earnings calls in the past of how they, you know, and, and uh, other operators have too, of how they see ducks. It's it's just a kind of a function of the building up inventory, having some padding, and then working as needed. And I think this post-COVID thing or, or during COVID has been a little different in that, you know, they build it up and then they work it back. And we're seeing that that chunkiness with uh, private companies in the Permian, like Endeavor and CrownQuest, where they're not fracking or they're just, they'll drop rigs here and there and then they'll bring them back. Um, and so I think in North Dakota, it seems like that, Obviously, if you have 21 rigs running and that's not the, you know, that's not 60 rigs, but I don't, I, I don't think you need as many rigs as you did before where wells have always been roughly 10,000 feet. I know they were, they've been a bit shy of that, but in, in the Wilson Basin, I think folks have to realize is that this isn't the Permian, you know, folks were drilling 10,000, uh, you know, mile long laterals in the very beginning and they've consistently done so. So we've had those lateral links, but I, I, I have heard consistently that these wells are being drilled significantly faster and the speed of that um, is taking place. And that's, I've heard that across the board, but I think, you know, minus 37 WTI and the need to sort of, you know, claw your way back, you don't have a lot of room for error. So I think the need to drill faster, and I've heard everything from on, you know, these wells are getting spud to TD in seven days, all the way down to these wells are getting spud to TD at 10,000 foot lateral in a matter of, of sub four days. And that would make sense to me if you're drilling the wells that fast, and you're obviously, and most of these are probably for at least four well pads that your frack crews, you know, I'm not, doesn't make sense to me if you're, if you're simo fracking or you're, you're, you know, this of these 15 frack fleets that they're doing more than one well at a time or capable of doing more one time. It does seem like you have a lot of frack fleets. I'm guessing that those aren't fully dedicated, that it's a little bit chunky. Um, but if, if a, even a handful of those are fracking two wells at once or, or doing some kind of, you know, maybe it's not one frack fleet and, and, and two wells at the same time, but if some kind of combination or some metric of the two, it, it means that you're going to be blowing through wells pretty quickly and that your duck inventory is going to matter and the speed of drilling is going to matter. So I'm guessing that it's going to, the summer, the late summer and the really good weather is going to look really, really good for the Wilson Basin. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the ducks and the important thing, and uh, for those that are interested, I've got a video on my, my website, but I looked at the ducks and it's one thing to have a duck number, but it's another to have a number of, of quality ducks, right? So you got to have ducks. It's You don't need a duck out on the fringe right now. You need a, a good high quality duck in good acreage positions. And, and so then that number chops and you know, we'll call it in half just for, for easy sake, but now you're down to say 400 ducks in the basin. And so you, again, pumping up that that rig fleet number is going to be very important here as we move into 2022 uh, because they are going to eat through the, that duck inventory probably relatively quickly so and it, it, interestingly even after the drilling so we you know we see some acceleration in the drilling and maybe fewer rigs needed continental in its august presentation shows that the cumulative performance of wells in 21 is outpacing prior years so not only the getting the oil faster, but they're getting the oil faster. Um, so I think that uh, is fairly bullish for hopefully your high case scenario. If I'm an infrastructure provider, 
for uh, for needs down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, going forward, I, I've as far as forecasting, if we want to if we want to change gears and start talking about where do we see this thing heading, you know, um, I have what I call my base case. And so, the way I've been looking at this, right or wrong, right now, I, I'm I'm getting comfortable with. Uh, uh, a relationship between price and activity of about an 80% ratio of what it was pre pre COVID. So I'm not going to go back to using the same type of, of activity metric pre COVID uh, going forward. And so I've, I've taken a 20% haircut off of that. Um, I'm starting to settle in on, on some comfort there again, what we'll, we'll see. Uh, but even at that 80% level, um, I do use the EIA, their oil price outlook. And so depending upon what price index you're looking at if you're looking at the strip or pick your pick your number uh, but using the EIA uh, they've got some pretty strong pricing in those outward years that, that really support uh, higher activity levels higher production rates and and again when we look at that growth long term I'm not I'm not really ramping up crude oil uh, at a substantial rate you know it bumps up a bit here in 2022 in my my base case scenario about seven percent. But then in that 2023, 2024, we're looking at low single digit production growth on, on oil. So again, I think trying to be reasonable, I'm not ramping up the production at the rates that it was pre, pre-collapse, pre uh, that this, we are looking at uh, structurally a, a different set of parameters, maybe a, a bit of a different industry in the way that they're coming at this, um, at least in the next handful of years. So, uh, but even with that, uh, we we still have some some exciting things happening. And then when we're ready for the natural gas side, then then we'll we'll really dig in because well, that gas side looks very very strong. We'll we'll get there. But I wanna I wanna go back because I, I I'm not done drilling down on the oil or the numbers side. So <laughs> let's just give per, for perspective. I wanna I wanna go back and make a, a duck comment um in a second. But just for perspective, I know in your forecast, Justin, you put and I like the way you do it because when I do when I do build production forecasts, I think about the wells added each month or the completions each month or that you actually bring online and and you can get really accurate. I mean, my forecasts have been very very accurate in a two year range um, when you're looking at the well additions and you're putting sort of price decks and stuff to them. And when you understand the industry, it's you can you can get a nice range of of those well additions now for. The Wilson Basin, I was looking at in Verse data, and that was for 2019, 1,300 wells they have in their system. Basically, 1,300 wells were were put in in 2019. So that's that's just over 100 wells a month, roughly. You know, in 2020, that was only 614. Now, so that you know, that's you you have that number, or you more than have that number, and you have about 50 50 wells or 50 completions a month. You have in your price in your in your production outlooks that high production to get back to 1.5 million barrels per day and not until 2025, you have a hundred wells a month. And the reason I want to press on that a little bit is that in 2021, Inveris is only showing 241 wells. So it's taken a while, you know, the the getting back into gear in the Wilson Basin is, is, is taking a little bit of time for a number of reasons. We've touched on a lot of COVID factors, but the normalized, I looked at the initial production rates for normalized wells, you know, and so you're averaging unnormalized, you know, not factoring lateral length, you're looking at, you know, 700 barrels a day, north of 700 barrel a day IP on average for every single well. Um, and that is increased year over year. But when you normalize that, your IPs for this year are higher. Your IPs for 2021 or for 2020 were the highest they'd ever been. And your normalized, um, actually your cumes or your cumulative barrels normalized um, are highest they've ever been as, as well. And I've always thought, 
you know, and I, I know you may not want to dig too much on the completion side, but I am, um, and I wish I, I had these books in front of me, but I've loved the Bakken forever. I think it is a gift that keeps on giving. I think that folks who are, you know, Ixnay the Bakken or poo-poo the Bakken and don't think there's inventory left or don't think it has enough life left or have enough, you know, oil in the rock left, I think they're wrong. And I think that this is the first unconventional oil play. We have more data and more analysis on this play than we have in any other unconventional play in the world. It's a very clean geologic formation. We know it really well. And I think that, you know, we are people, you, I remember going to those rock labs with Julie Lefevre, um, who has since passed away, God rest her soul, but was an amazing woman. And um, she knew so much about the the rocks. And when we would go look at those labs, I remember early, tw- probably pre-2014, you would look at the three forks and people would say, well, we can't really do those benches. And now we're doing those benches into the three forks. So I just want to talk a little bit about that productivity. And, you know, you aren't seeing the latest and greatest completions. You aren't seeing necessarily everyone who has completely tweaked and maximized their spacing of these wells or or really maxed out on, on the completion side. You know, there's a lot of hesitancy. And part of all that hesitancy was they these wells were expensive, they're distanced from market, and they had these discounts. And now you've got you know, one and a half million barrels a day of pipeline capacity, you know, or nameplate capacity, and you have prices north, you know, nor anything north of 60 is pretty good for North Dakota in the Wilson Basin. So that all looks pretty well to say you could start tinkering and playing with these wells a little more. And my question with all that, that ranting on is, could we see some upside in your, for, or is there potential that the productivity could be a little better? And you may not need a hundred completions a month to get to that number. Yeah, yeah. So, so a few things you to unpackage there. Uh, the, the first on the on the productivity side, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, when when this thing got going, and, and again having that luxury of seeing this really from the the beginning, I've always been wrong. The, my my forecasts, I've always been wrong. Uh, I've always been on the low side. Uh, this this basin has continued to surprise us, and and we're still even you know 15 years later, um, looking at ultimate recoveries of call it. 12 to, to 15 percent of, of the oil in place and so the the discussion really quickly about you know the the bearish outlooks and you can go back to every every downturn that that we've been through now uh, a few of them you can go back and read the same headlines oh north dakota's done north dakota's peaked north dakota and it, it's been frustrating to have to combat that and and really uh, again from a nerdy perspective say you know, here is the rock here's the resource we are very, very far from from that position. Uh, when you look at drillable locations, not only in the middle block and the three forks. Uh, again, when you when you see some presentations, they look at the three forks, and, and there may be a, a title there that says you know upside potential, or it's really not fully baked into some of uh, those outlooks. And so I'm I'm very bullish on the three forks. Uh, the, the data that I've been able to pull, looking at well performance, you know, uh, in some cases, you know, ninety plus percent as productive as the middle Bakken, especially when you're up in that upper tier, the the, the first bench, if you want to call it that. Um, as you get into that second and third benches, you know, maybe you're in that 70% as uh, 70 plus percent uh, efficiency as the middle Bakken. And so um, at various price points, uh, that still works out very, very well. And so when we look at long-term, yes, the middle Bakken, the upper three forks is the, the gravy. Uh, but when we look at long-term inventory and what to expect, not only next year, but now we're talking 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, that three forks will be developed. I'm very confident in that. Um, With with the way completion technology is going to continue to change, I'll think back five years, what we've learned in five years. Now we're already trying to 
predict what we're going to have for technology and, and efficiencies 10, 20 years from now, um, it, it will likely come back and, and we're all young enough that maybe we'll have a podcast then in, in 20 years and we'll say, wow, were we, we were way off, right? And, and I'm sure we will. So it'll be fun to see this continue to evolve. Well, I like that you basically said that you agreed with me. So you're also bold. Yes, I, I so, don't disagree. I awesome. think it's your yeah. famous line. It is, yeah. is my is Yes, my I love it. Yes. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I think also, I mean, the thing that people, it was even probably just a year and a half ago, it was, it was pre-COVID, that the flipping of even Hess on sliding sleeves and plug and perf. And the fact that folks, you know, it took, EOG has always been big on their plug and perf, and EOG has always had some exceptional wells early on in the Bakken in the in the core that were just really, really great. And I think back to just thinking about how simple those completions were, how short the lateral links were, and really the evolution that the envelope hasn't, I don't think, has been truly pushed on that factor. But the the note I'll just re- go back to on those ducks and thinking about that tier one, tier two, and tier three is that it's something that a lot of cop operators talked about in, in the in, in 2014 when and the downturn when things were really painful in 2015 was that, you know, there was a duck buildup of inventory and EOG was one of those companies that built up their ducks. And it was kind of funny because they would tell people, they had to tell folks that, you know, eventually came out that the, the ducks weren't as good because their, the drilling had gotten significantly better. And, and by that, they just were better at landing the laterals and slightly better in zone so that, and, and better at fracking that well. And so when they did their newer wells, they just performed better. And so they had all these ducks and they waited forever to complete them. They, they waited, you know, a year plus to actually complete those ducks because they knew they weren't going to be as high of performers and they were, and they weren't, they actually didn't have the same output and they had to kind of trickle that information into their earnings calls. But I think that's, you know, you commented on those ducks and the ducks that aren't as good. And I do think that's important to take into account of that. Not every operator is created equal and not every well is created, not, the rock isn't created equal and, and those ducks will be lumpy, but it doesn't mean if you see a chunk that are bad, I think that that, you know, the whole play is bad. I just think that, you know, some are not going to be as good as others. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Ben, yeah. Well, if, as in Ethan's words, if we've exhausted or, or have a natural pause or we've exhausted sort of this <laughs> topic on, on the production well, side. Well, you're the most common denominator. So if you have exhausted your question, yes. Well, I, I so, really have. I mean, I could talk about production forever. Yeah, I, but I know you could, but know. we, we want to keep our listeners I know. with us we here. Do. So we do. So well, let me, let me, let me shift to the midstream side. May I yes. do that please, Trisha? You, absolutely. So, you know, I looked at your scenarios and it looks like if I had to sort of write a thesis statement for North Dakota that, we have sufficient processing capacity right now. We have sufficient three-stream takeaway, but that might not be the case in 23, 24, depending on which stream and which scenario you're talking about. And some of the, let's start with oil, some of the, the incremental oil pipeline takeaway projects are, are far from certain. So you've got the, the Bakken expansion on, or the, excuse me, the DAPL expansion. Um, you've got the project from Bridger, um, I haven't followed the refinery much, but I know the Liberty pipeline was basically, you know, stick a fork in that. Um, Phillips 66 pulled out of that. So I guess true companies could decide to do that again if they wanted to. Um, wh- where do you think in- incremental capacity is going to come from first on the oil side? And when do you think most likely we'll need it? Yeah. So so first off, as as we sit here today, you know, August 3rd, uh, things are in, in very, very good shape, whether you're looking at crude oil, natural gas, but on the crude oil side specifically, you know, the first 
expansion that's going to be complete, if not already complete, would be the Dakota Access starting to ramp up some of their pumping horsepower along the route. Uh, so that you know was anticipated to be done by by year end. There was a bit of a nugget in Continental's earning call today for folks that, yep. that go back and listen to that as well. So um, that that's going to be the first capacity uh, brought online. And then, you know, going forward to the South Bend project, True Companies, again, getting that. So there is capacity now to get that oil from Baker, Montana. For those of you familiar with the, the geography, um, one of True's major hubs is, is Baker, Montana. Once you can get oil to Baker, uh, there is a capacity going south. And then whether you get on Pony Express or, or some other things, exit Guernsey, uh, that's where that capacity would go. And so right now that South Bend project needs to work through the North Dakota Public Service Commission, as well as the Montana uh, Public uh, Utilities Commission. And once that's uh, approved and, and moves forward, that would add incremental capacity. But, uh, you know, as far as the, the two major projects, it would be not only this first step of, of expanding Dakota Access, which you know, some numbers out there right around that 750,000, it would uh, bring that capacity up to ultimately in the future, bringing it up to that 1.1 million barrels. So a tremendous amount of running room on the crude oil side. So we're in very, very good shape on, on crude oil with those projects. Uh, we still have you know, a dozen or so uh, crude by rail facilities that are still operating. You know, all the major ones that had unit train capabilities, we've seen some of them start to act like a hub where they have pipe connectivity in and out. And so they're not only servicing the rail, but they're servicing as a marketing hub. And so those are going to continue to operate. And so things from a crude oil perspective look look very, very good. I know earlier in the, the podcast, Trisha was talking about um, the discounts in North Dakota. So when you look back historically, you know, five, 10 years ago, we were happy in, in, uh, with, you know, an $8 discount to WTI. You know, here in the first six months of, of 2021, we're, we've been averaging right around $6 um, at the wellhead for North Dakota on, on average. And so things are continuing to improve on the midstream for crude oil. Uh, we've got a good running room. And then when you start switching over to the, the natural gas, that's where we start getting into constraints, not only from a, a regulatory standpoint from, you know, uh, flaring gas capture targets from the NDIC, uh, but then also internal targets that companies have started to set for themselves. Okay. With that, let's, let's hold on the net gas thing. Cause there's a lot on that. I guess I want to back up, back up to the pipeline side. Cause most folks don't truly understand exactly. I, I, Continental did drop some stuff. So basically, Continental said the expansion was, they basically said with the, the, the expansion is, has happened. So what is the nameplate capacity of Dakota Access with, you know, let's pretend the expansion is right. What is the nameplate capacity right now of Dakota Access? And what is the nameplate capacity right now you have on the books for pipeline capacity out of the Wilson Basin? Uh, so the, as far as pre-expansion, 570,000 barrels, five, okay. 570 right. to 600 for Dakota Access. Uh, 750 is the number I'm using for uh, that first expansion chunk that, that will be coming online uh, this year. And then ultimately, if if the market's there to support it, ramping it up then up to the, the 1.1 million barrels per day. Okay. And the South, so that's the, and we've talked about Dakota Access at length in, in, the, in the podcast. And I, I do think it's really, really important that to, to explain, telling listeners that $6 discount, and I've heard it even lower. I mean, what you're getting, you know, folks are, are even getting better prices. And so this is such a um, a unique period for the Wilson Basin. And I say it, it's a sort of a new and unique period because I don't think the market has fully appreciated. And and even, you know, Continental mentioned their earnings call because they're doing share buybacks. And I do think that folks probably are not appreciating that Bach and company should be, they should take another look at their value, their evaluation of these companies because it is private land. 
Um, North Dakota is largely private land. You do have these, um, you know, competitive discounts now. You don't have, you don't have, at least right now, you don't have the regulatory risk on the pipeline side. Your production is down, you know, 500,000 barrels a day from where it was. So you have running room for growth. Um, you have growth, you have running room for production growth and you, and you have the transportation capacity and you can get it to market. So all these things are really in favor of, of the Wilson Basin and, and pricing, but I'll back up one more time to the South Bend pipeline. And that's, um, I, I looked at that name and that was a new name. So the Liberty pipeline, it was kind of, it, the equality pipeline was built. So there's a pipeline running from the northern part of Wyoming through Guern to Guernsey. And that pipeline is a 200,000 barrel day pipeline of the true companies that is in place right now. So that Baker system, which is technically, it, that's the South Bend, right? That that's just connecting into that. So that that, that adds 200,000 barrels a day capacity, essentially, to the true company's Bridger and Butte system? Correct. Yep, exactly. Okay. okay. And I'm guessing that South Bend is a reference to uh, CAD through in the Notre Dame and something like that, because it's a little bit uh, off place for Wyoming, but I'm guessing that's where the South Bend name came from. We'll have to have yep. him on the podcast to find yep. out. Yeah, Tad will have to confirm that. He's always got creative names, though, for his, his projects. Yes, but the quality pipeline makes sense, because that's Wyoming and the quality state. So, okay. So that's, that's the pipeline side. So I would say all three of us are probably pretty bullish, especially on the midstream side of on the crude side, having that capacity, but you have, you know, you just alluded to it a few minutes ago, but you also have talked about it in your presentations on your, on your website that these wells are, and you, you explain, I love your, your graphics that you have on the bubble point in the reservoir uh, and that, you know, how, how these wells come on. So one, older wells are producing more gas, but actually you, you signal that newer wells, even though they're doing great on the productivity of oil, they're also producing a lot of gas. And I think that I want to flag that, you know, we, this isn't dissimilar from what we saw in the Permian Basin where people were like freaking out when they saw lots of gas, you know, and Pioneer would be like, hold up, you know, yes, we have monster gas, but we also have, you know, 3000 barrels a day oil, but we're getting, you know, equivalent of gas. So that gas is a drive that brings it up. So is that the case, what we're seeing in North Dakota? Or are we simply seeing that, you know, these wells are just gassier, they're a little less oil and they're more gas, or is it that this, they also have a gas drive with it? And it's something that, you know, it's a good thing, but it has to be dealt with in process. Or is this that we're just, you know, oil's still good, but we're getting more gas with it. And it, these are slightly gassier wells. Yeah. So, so the Bakken three fork system is a solution gas drive. So that, that natural gas is in solution down at reservoir temperatures and pressures. So um, it's not a free gas uh, drive type system that you see in other conventional plays or things like that. There is no free gas window, anything of that sort, like you'd see in the Eagle Ford or, or some of those other plays. So the Bakken, it's all solution gas drive, but as that pressure drawdown occurs at the reservoir level, right, you, you start to, to lower that pressure and, and just the, the, the picture I always tell people is, you know, a bottle of, of soda pop, right? So you, when you look at your Diet Coke and you, you can't see the the CO2 bubbles within that, right? Until you start to, to lower the pressure. Same thing happens with a Bakken barrel of oil. As that pressure drop occurs, uh, you know, immediately down in the, the wellborn as it's coming to surface, um, that natural gas starts to free itself and, and you can't, you can't drink your, your Diet Coke without the, the fizz or without the bubbles. You can't bring your crude oil to surface without the, the natural gas. And so, um, so it's a great, it's not that, uh, the, the natural gas is bad. Certainly these wells, they're, they're just getting better on all fronts, right? So the, the crude oil is not suffering in any way, shape, or form right now that, that we're able to tell. So the crude oil is still doing great um, as far as productivity. It's just that there is more gas. The wells are starting out gassier 
on average. Uh, so typically when you think about a parent and a child well, that child well, the infill drilling, which is a, what a lot of, of, you know, today's activity is, you know, that, that well bore is going into a reservoir that maybe is starting at just a slightly lower uh, pressure than the parent well had. And so that, that, it, that pressure change, that delta is, is lower. And so uh, again, these wells are starting out gassier. And then as you have, you know, multiple wells going into a reservoir, that whole reservoir, that whole drilling unit is being pulled down in pressure. And so you just start to see gas free itself up a little bit more easily, a little more quickly. And so uh, that gas is coming up and we're seeing that, you know, in, in the hard numbers, it's not a myth, it, it's it's happening. Um, the other thing is, you know, North Dakota is unique in that we have some of the richest gas. I, I, I can't find a play in the U.S. or North America that has wetter gas if someone knows you know let me know but you know typical uh wetness you know is 10 to, to 13 gallons of liquids uh for every mcf of gas and so it, and it's just tremendous to, just for our listeners i think i think it's really important to point that out because it me- meaning that it also it has a higher beat i mean you have you have more components to right I think you have more natural gas liquids within your gas stream. You have a higher, higher BTU contents. I mean, it's rich gas. So it's not, um, this isn't just dry gas, but you also means that, and we, we saw this kind of early on the play, you have to strip out those, uh, you have to strip out those NGLs. And often when ethane prices are sucking, you just kind of, you get rid of it or you, you try to kick it in the pool. So that, that richness is good, but it also means that you have to have a lot of processing capacity. Yeah, absolutely. And and specialized processing capacity for that gas stream because early in the play, it wasn't uncommon for, for midstream companies to, to buy a used plant down in the Gulf. They'd bring it up to North Dakota and that thing would just struggle up here. Not only would it struggle with our, our winters and the temperatures, but the, the gas was just choking out those plants. There was so much liquids within that that those plants just could not reliably operate as, as expected. So new plants were, were half to be designed, constructed up here in North Dakota um, in order to handle that type of gas quality. And so that is all compounded, you know, the challenges we've had over the last 10 plus years of of gas capture. Um, As Ethan noted a few minutes ago, we are in a a very good spot today on gas capture. We're we're exceeding the gas capture requirements Uh, long term. uh, We will need the whole gamut of of additional investments in midstream, uh, whether it's gas gathering, processing, transmission, not only for the residue gas, uh, but the NGLs as well. Every aspect of the, the gas world is going to need additional investments moving forward. Do you do you see that? Well, I want to ask, how much is the, I want to get to that investment piece, and, and Ethan, I'm sure, has has comments and, and questions on that as well, but what is the gas, what's gas production right now? What's the, you know, gas to oil, the GOR, as the gas to oil ratio right now, as it stands, the actual production volume right now of natural gas? So we've got right around three BCF a day of gas okay. production. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. near nearly triple. You're you're getting three MCF a day, or you're getting three MCF per barrel of oil, roughly. It's like two point six five or something. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. So so roughly, and right now there is enough processing capacity to to get it from the wellhead, um, and to flare very minimal, or because most historically, and I always like to point this out as well, because there has been lots of controversy and issues with within the Wilson Basin, North Dakota for historical flaring. And I, I broke down the numbers, wrote a lot of reports on it when I was with the Energy Policy Research Foundation. And, you know, a lot of it was that the, the wells were connected 
to processing, you know, the wells actually did have a pipeline on it. And, you know, we can't truck the gas the way we can truck oil. You have to have a pipeline connection to it. Uh, but that they often flared simply because they came on strong. So where does it stand right now? Where does the North Dakota and Wilson Basin stand? Because that flaring and we'll get into the methane and ESG and stuff shortly, but that's always been a big issue. And I, I know it's it's a big deal for the state of North Dakota and the Wilson Basin. But where does that stand right now, especially given that you pointed out we're, we are have these these bigger wells and we are getting more gas up front. Yeah. So, so certainly, you know, backing up uh, the, the challenge 10 plus years ago was yes, uh, that we had a limited number of wells connected that, that quickly transformed over the last number of, of years. Absolutely. And uh, today's uh, gas capture picture is such that, you know, uh, three times the amount of gas is being flared from wells that do have a pipeline connection than unconnected facilities. And, and it's, again, if you think about it logically, the producers are coming back in for their infill drilling, right? So that parent well probably has, so there is pipe in the ground. However, right. you look back at those production curves of a well drilled in, in 2017 or 16, whenever that parent well was was drilled, the, the production level of those wells, even if, even if in 2016, the operator knew, I'm going to have four wells on this pad and the midstream company planned out their their piece of, of pipe in the ground for that 2016 level. Well, now we're at 2021 or 2022. Wells being drilled and, and producing and coming online are significantly better than they were four years ago. And now all of a sudden we're back in a position where that piece of pipe cannot handle all the gas that, that's coming towards it. So not only is the initial production levels higher, the gas flow ratios that we were just discussing, all those things have ramped up. And so um, this challenge has not gotten any easier on the midstream folks, right? They, they've been able to adapt and, and get ahead of it right now. Uh, but it is something that if you take your eye off the ball on gas capture in North Dakota for even a moment, um, it, it will start to get away from you. So you know, companies out there are very, very diligent on uh, making sure they've got compression where they need it, moving compressors or adding horsepower out in the field to to squeeze every uh, molecule of gas through that line as they can. The other thing that's unique about North Dakota is it gets so cold that those gathering lines, because we have such high liquids content, those liquids will start to settle out. And especially in the wintertime, uh, the, the midstream companies have to be very, very diligent on their pigging operations. So they've got just dedicated crews out there multiple times a day running pigs through their gathering lines just to clear liquids out of low spots. And, you know, so those those lines aren't being choked out um, in the field. So there's a, a tremendous amount of effort to try and keep those lines as, as efficient as possible, but it is a not un, unstoppable, you know, un, unrelenting uh, challenge out there for sure. But it's, I mean, these are almost, I mean, these are in, in a way, one, I think there's a lot of interesting nuggets there, but super fascinating. And I think it does point, it does allude and point to the fact that the one productivity has been maintained um, and that this infill drilling is sort of working. But I mean, gas will, you're, you're basically explaining very, very clearly, gas is always going to be a serious issue. I would like to ask a question on the average spacing, just so we can, what the average spacing of these wells and the well pads, because you keep saying when you're bringing these infill wells in, so what is the average of that? Because that does impact, you know, completions and everything. And then also on the gas prices are good. And when we also heard that in the Continental Call, not necessarily in reference to associated gas, but it does help everyone that there's an incentive. It, it helps in general that there's an incentive to capture this gas. Gas prices are high. Your liquid, you know, everything's going to be high with it. Do, are these folks, you know, at hope that the hedging of this gas, because I, I don't believe gas prices will stay high forever. Um, this gas is a fickle market in the U.S. and and we are bringing production back, especially 
the way you're explaining this three BCF a day. We have a lot of associated gas across the country. Yes, demand is high, but we're near pre pre COVID levels for gas per, natural gas production in the U.S. So I don't think it'll stay you know north of four dollars forever. And so I think that keeping, you know, building out that infrastructure and understanding, will it sort of work at three bucks? Is there a price range that this starts getting tricky? Um, and does that impact the infrastructure build out and that keeping that your eye on the ball? Yeah. So, so a lot of the contracts and things have, have shifted over the years as well, where it used to be commodity driven and there was some commodity risk to the midstream companies. A lot of it now has shifted to fee-based type services and, and especially going forward where, you know, companies have, have, you know, even internally raise the bar for what type of, of gas capture and support they expect out of the midstream companies. And so, you know, we're going to continue to see probably that fee-based structure where, yes, the, the commodity prices, uh, they certainly matter. And especially with the rich gas like North Dakota, NGL prices that typically follow the, the crude market, you know, things are, are in pretty good shape right now. Uh, but long-term, if that turns around, like we've seen in the past, um, the, the, the midstream companies trying to position themselves that they will continue to, to provide that service, continue to build out as necessary. Because again, the economics in North Dakota are not made on the gas. The gas is icing right. on the cake of, of the Bakken development. So if the oil prices are there and you know the netbacks and the, the midstream from the, the oil side are there, um, the gas is, is going to have to continue to keep up. What are okay. the incentive mechanisms for producers and midstreamers in North Dakota to meet the flaring targets? Because at some price, gas is just trash. What what holds their feet to the fire in terms of hitting those flaring targets? Yeah, so the, the state of North Dakota, the, the Industrial Commission, the Oil and Gas Division, Lynn Helms and his team there, so they have, throughout the last number of years, started to ratchet up what their requirement is. And so today's threshold is that all companies need to be at a 91% capture or, or 9% flaring if you, you flip that around. If a company is not hitting that target, uh, the Oil and Gas Division has the capability to go in and start throttling back their production until they do hit that. So the, the biggest stick that, that those regulators have is um, the threat of, of shutting in or, or cutting back production from those wells. And so that hurts immediately that from a, a producer. Yep. For, for sure. And with respect to the sort of benefits in some markets and in, uh, in some market environments when ethane prices are high versus when they're not and you're rejecting ethane, can you talk about that decision point for the midstreamers, how, how ethane rejection has trended over time? And then um, this may go over uh, the heads of some people listening to this podcast, but it might be worth talking about the BTU content on Northern border and how that impacts or doesn't impact gas takeaway capacity. Yeah, absolutely. For the listeners that have been part of North Dakota or following North Dakota the last couple of years, uh, they, they're going to know exactly what we're talking about on the, the BTU and the ethane side. For those outside, just very, very quickly. So again, that discussion of North Dakota's gas being very, very rich, uh, 50% of that, uh, NGL content is ethane. And so when you, the first part of the decision tree is, can you even capture that ethane? There's a number of processing plants in North Dakota that were constructed and built, you know, they're refrigeration plants. They do not have the capability to get cold enough to strip out that ethane. So for some, there is no decision to be made. They cannot do anything with the ethane. That, that high ethane content needs to just be sent out with the residue gas out the tailgate. For those plants that, that do have that capability, um, there are a couple of large complexes, State Line, that One Oak, uh, and then the Hess Tioga facility. They have a direct ethane 
market up in Alberta for the pet cam. And so there's, there's market incentive there. Uh, but for the rest of the, the plants that do have that decision to be made, they will look at, okay, what's the market doing? Is that ethane more valuable to the, the producer as heat on, in the residue stream? Or is there a downstream appetite where we can send that ethane down the NGL? pipeline system. And so here, really since about February of this year, we've seen a bit of a transition from some of those plants that can capture the ethane. We've seen, you know, about 25 to 30,000 barrels of incremental ethane being captured here in the last you know, six months that we weren't seeing before. Um, but that again, that's a market situation. You know, is it the long-term expectation? You know, no one really knows. But what's happening is the plants that can't capture the ethane that are having to stick it out on the residue and, and when the market is not right for ethane to be captured and it has to you know the the next best option is to put it in the residue stream everything uh, that that's getting put on northern border is continuing to ratchet up that energy content on that system and so why that matters so northern border is our largest exit uh pipeline from North Dakota. It's a 42-inch line, 2.4 BCF a day of capacity. And so that heads down to the Chicago market. And and not only the Chicago market, but there's a handful of pipelines that it interconnects with. And those interconnecting pipelines do have limits on what the gas quality spec is on their systems. And so as North Dakota's market share in northern border has been ramping up, our gas volumes have ramped up, that ethane content and the heat, everything was just kind of ratcheting up and you could watch it, you know, day by day, even in some cases, um, that, that started to get the attention of the downstream and northern border came out last year and, and asked the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, to allow them to put a limit on the, the heat content coming out of North Dakota. And so that, uh, that had a tremendous amount of attention last year. Um, if, if all the things hadn't been happening with Dakota Access, um, that the northern border discussion probably would have been the, the top headline from the Bakken, but it was certainly right up there as far as importance with what was happening with Dakota Access at the same time. And uh, what, what is the, the... That's great. And really good questions, Ethan. I thought the beat, that's uh, in great great clarity. What, what is the actual production right now of ethane and, and of the NGL side and what's being how much is being rejected? Yep. So on the ethane side, when you look at total, I've, I've got to scroll through my, my screen here for just a second. So uh, my number, and again, there's not a hard number specifically on ethane, but I'm I'm north of the, call it 550 to 600,000 barrels of ethane being produced. I'm sorry. Nope. That was all NGLs. Right around 380, uh, 380,000 barrels of, of ethane uh, being okay. produced. Yep. Okay. And you don't, do you know how much is being rejected? Uh, about hundred and little over a hundred thousand barrels a day is being captured. So the, the rest would be rejected. So Northern okay. border can handle about 200,000 barrels a day in trained and still stay at that 1100 BTU limit. So. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. Intel. Ethan, is would there, you like to. Is there, yeah, I just want to know, is it, you know, I'm just curious. I don't think I've ever asked you this before is, is there an opportunity for an, a, a deethanizer? straddle plant downstream somewhere as, as somebody thought about doing that? Yeah. So all, all options have been on the table. And so whether, okay. whether it's a straddle facility, whether it's, uh, you know, all new plants adding deethanizing capabilities, retrofitting existing plants. Um, one of the other uh, concepts being in there is, you know, can you blend hydrogen in it? We're seeing a number of uh, midstream companies around North America, you know, Enbridge and, and others looking at blending hydrogen. You know, hydrogen has a very low 
BTU content per cubic foot. And so could you cancel out some of that effect? So there's people are getting or have gotten very creative over the last uh, 12 months as this really came to a head in North Dakota. I imagine there's a limit on the, I mean, at most pipelines, existing pipelines, a lot of them, part of the issues with hydrogen are that they are not built to handle hydrogen and existing natural gas pipelines are simply can't hold it, that there's, there's a lot of, a lot of risk that you'd, you'd have to sort of retrofit a lot of pipelines to, to, to increase the volume, you know, if you're really trying to push that line on adding hydrogen not yeah, so from adding other components in the pipelines. Yeah. And not to, to, to swing this too far, but it, it, it would take very, very low single digit percentages to really impact the, that challenge here from North Dakota. So it, it is most numbers are, are right around that five to 10% seem like a reasonable number for what a pipeline can safely move. That's what folks are, are testing out right now. Uh, but it would take, you know, in the lower end of that to, to make a meaningful difference. We're not a typical North Dakota plant exits, you know, one that's rejecting ethane around 1200 BTU. So we're not, we're not going from 1200 to something extremely low. You're just trying to get it from 1200 to, to 1100. And so at, at ethane, or I'm sorry, hydrogen content of 300, it doesn't take much blending to, to make that happen. So just to sort of bring all this into a, a thesis for what's going on in North Dakota, it, it sounds a lot like the the gating factor on production is companies' commitments to free cash flow and their willingness to spend, and they're being conservative now rather than infrastructure. And until they get a little bit more aggressive on deploying rigs and deploying capital and more comfortable on development, we we probably have a, a good runway pretty much everywhere on on infrastructure. Is that is that fair? We do to a degree, uh, particularly on that gas side. And so even in a scenario where uh, producers held production flat on crude oil, right? If, if Even at the bearish outlook, if someone says, hey, Justin, we're not going to grow oil production at the, the 3 to 5% like you're you're showing in your, your base case, even at a flat scenario, that GOR is not flat. The gas oil ratio is not flat. That continues to ramp up. And, and uh, so natural gas continues to, to move upwards. Um, regardless of, of a flat oil scenario. And then we do start hitting some of those those ceilings. So the, the gas investments, you know, we then the argument becomes timing of it versus a, it's not an if but when type discussion. So uh, I still see in all scenarios other than an absolute collapse again in, in the sector that gas infrastructure needs expanding. And do you see that this, I mean, are there enough signals and enough willingness? So I know we all, folks always talk about it needs to be there and we sort of assume it will come. And on, on the oil side, it's always, you know, not for the Wilson Basin, but for many other basins, you have an overbuilt out. Typically it's, you know, the signal comes and everybody goes bananas and you have an overbuilt out and you haven't, you end up with enough oil pipeline capacity. You don't necessarily always end up with enough natural gas pipeline capacity, say out of the, the Permian Basin. I think they'll they'll hit the point where they need, you know, more and additional infrastructure as well. And it's never, it's never always, I mean, the price signals and the bottlenecks never happen when, you know, it, they happen well before you get to the capacity because it's the fear and the concern. So is that, do you think that'll get worked out in, in the Wilson Basin where the signals like the, the entities, and I'm, I'm not, you don't have to name drop or anything, but, you know, One Oak is a big company in, on, the, on that natural gas infrastructure side. So are those companies sort of gearing up and ready for that and, and understanding the signals and saying, okay, even if this is flat production, we're going to have to, you know, ramp up our, our natural gas infrastructure spend? Yeah, yeah. So I, I am 
uncomfortable. So I, I, I don't want to put that message out there, certainly to, to listeners, that you know that, that there's some fear that this won't happen. The, the right players are they're in their boardrooms okay. right now. They're awesome. they're at their yeah. desks. They're they're working through this. So um, again, it's more of the timing thing right now that a lot right. of us you know are going back and forth of trying to understand GORs and, and, and rig completion schedules and all these different things. So, um, yeah, I, I do feel comfortable that the right folks are, are digging into this and, and it's going to continue to happen when it needs to. So just to back up, uh, when you, you, you clarified that really well, Justin, explaining that, I mean, the, the folks that are in the boardrooms, they are planning on building, building this stuff out and this is working, but I think this does, you know, they're the nuggets and elements of this, I think are really important is that, you know, the actual, the rig count you know, who's drilling those wells, the actual wells, the productivity of these wells, um, how it gets brought online, all this and, you know, the amount of the frack fleets, you know, are they simofracks? Are they twin fracks? Like, you know, the productivity, the the speed in which they're fracking, the speed in which they're drilling, all these things are extremely meaningful and unfolding. And, and truthfully, I can tell you in all my market research and talking to folks, it's not well understood. You know, it's not well understood by a lot of, a lot of entities and a lot of companies of, of the the speed of small efficiencies and the compounded impact of efficiencies of just drilling drilling slightly longer wells or, or slightly longer laterals and drilling them faster, it is compounding. And I'm not sure if you guys are feeling in, in I, you're probably feeling in North Dakota because we're feeling it across the country, but I know that Liberty um, mentioned in their earnings call the massive impact they're seeing on not being able to get enough workers um, and, you know, really struggling on the on the competition space of, you know, com- with truckers competing with Amazon and every other delivery service and just, you know, the lack of, of access to labor. And I'm imagining, especially in North Dakota, that, you know, you have plenty of pipelines, but you do have a need for truckers and you do have a need to move this frac sand. And, and things might be slow now, but as they sort of, you know, the price signals there and folks are ramping up and entities like Continental are saying we're bringing another rig. And that's going to be counter cyclical to what we normally see when things drop off toward the back half of the year is that are you going to start to see some tightness on those things? And I mean, that's not I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing, but you may see some tightness in the market and getting all this stuff together. And are you seeing that now? Yeah, absolutely. So labor um, is is forefront in, in a lot of discussions as well. So, you know, North Dakota in the past, uh, we we were kind of counter cyclical to some of the national events going on. And so when the the nation was going through some some difficult uh, labor force issues, North Dakota had jobs and, and folks were, were willing to move here. Um, you know, after this last downturn, we're now in an environment where you know, there's labor shortages in, in all sectors. And so folks don't necessarily need to move to North Dakota uh, in order to have a good paying job in construction or trucking or, or you name it. So um, that is a concern. You know, North Dakota is unique. Um, it's a, it's, you know, does not have the, the kindest winter months. Um, I, I'm a, a lifelong North Dakotan, so I, I love the, the four seasons up here. It does get challenging though, for sure. And so you know, drawing talent up here, is has always been a, a concern and um, it's at the forefront today. I know uh, last year in 2020 when the big downturn occurred, you know there was a lot of, of funds and efforts and things going forward to try and keep as many workers as we could. So we were looking at plugging and, and uh, reclaiming abandoned well sites and things because we knew that we could not lose the, the talent. Uh, once they left, it was going to be real difficult to get them to, to come back. So um, that, that has helped to get the industry rolling, at least where it has so far in 2021. But that long-term need for the, the service sector, um, it's going to be a struggle. Yeah. So uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the technologies that has started to take up some flared gas increasingly in, in basins that have a surplus like um, the stack in Oklahoma and 
West Texas and North Dakota is Bitcoin mining. And um, I knew you're going there. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's it is basically captured energy. Bitcoin is energy by via proof of work. Um, I'm I'm curious how has how has that industry interacted, if at all, with the North Dakota Pipeline Commission, and do you see that uh, potentially as a viable solution to some of the flaring that that you still want to cut down on? Oh, absolutely. So so Crusoe was one of the uh, Crusoe yep. Energy for those that are familiar with that that team there one of the, the leaders up here in North Dakota. And so uh, North Dakota has welcomed that technology with, with open arms. Um, that, that provides a, a great resource. The one thing that it does provide, um, you know, we've had dozens of different technologies come forth to address gas capture, and, and but a lot of them um, had additional midstream needs. So if it was, you know, stripping NGLs, you still had to truck it, or you still had other midstream needs. With the Bitcoin mining, what's unique there is that they're taking the full gas stream or as much gas stream as they can handle, run it through their their generating system, get the power, and really that molecule of gas then is converted to really a, a bit of information or that, that Bitcoin, right? And so it's moving then th- out through satellites. It doesn't need to leave North Dakota on a pipe. It's leaving on a satellite system. So it it is unique. It does provide a lot of good optionality. When you look at the whole natural gas challenge for the, the state, it's still a very small segment of it. Um, it's not going to replace the full midstream need. Uh, so, But it does provide an important niche and um, it's exciting to see things like that come together. And Caruso, I believe, is because I've, I've spoken with them, is that their, their uh, you know, business model is to specifically go after gas that couldn't otherwise, that would be flared, right? So I believe that they're big in Northwood because of that. So they can go in there and it, they're not necessarily going for gas that that otherwise could be captured and, and be marketable, but it's it's gas that would be flared. So I'm not sure what the volumes are they're doing in North Dakota, but it seems like at least for some operators, especially trying to hit those targets, that it could be a viable solution for them. Yeah, and they're yeah. starting, I think, with Equinor now. And I think Equinor is their partner in North Dakota, formerly yeah. Statoil. Yeah, formerly Statoil, who bought Brigham. Um, yes. Back in the day. That was the first North Dakota rig I was on. Probably one of those visits I I saw Justin and mine on North Dakota. Uh, Ethan, do you mind if we just switch gears and and close with sort of some ESG and CO2 and, and hydrogen just to cover the gauntlet? Yeah, um, well, he, he Justin, in uh, his last presentation, mentioned there's that one, one non-oil and gas rig that's working on CO2 sequestration. So we could start there and, and head into the ESG. Yeah, that would be great. I have a, I have, I really do want you to talk a bit about, you know, starting there on the CO2 and then I have some additional questions about sort of the state of where it's at. And, you know, I know we've had some conversations just on, on the regulatory side of, of how, you know, different regulations on CO2 and what, the, you know, I know the state's looking at that and, and how you guys are sort of viewing that. And then I'd kind of like to loop that back to, uh, to ESG a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, the Williston Basin as a whole, and so I've, it's it's exciting for me to to watch this space continue to evolve. Uh, for those I know, we didn't want to get into my background real far, but one of the first things I did in the, in the industry was working with uh, the Energy Environmental Research Center in Grand Forks when I was still a student and working on their plain CO two reduction partnership. and And I had a professor who was my advisor at the time, and and we were trying to figure out my senior design, what I was going to do. And he said, "Well, there's this thing called the Bakken. It's 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 over in Montana. No one ever really thinks it's going to happen in North Dakota. We think that you know North Dakota." long-term will, will be a big carbon 
sink for, for carbon dioxide, you know, in, in the decades to come. And so my senior design project was capturing, taking CO2 from a, a power plant and designing a, a, a sequestration model, pumping it safely underground into the Broom Creek formation. And so that was, you know, all back uh, many, many years ago. And so it's fun to see projects now coming to light that are uh, turning some of that type of work into reality. And so it, it, North Dakota is a tremendous, tremendous asset for North America as a whole, the U.S. strategically. Um, the geology is great, seismically stable. Uh, it's got the right type of, of rock formations that, and more importantly, the right type of cap structure uh, down there to, to safely store extremely large volumes of, of carbon dioxide. So, you know, along with the blessings of, of the oil and gas resources and, and all of that sector that development's going to continue for decades, uh, the Williston Basin as a whole has a tremendous life ahead of it as well, serving the U.S. and, and the greater good as well in those sequestration capabilities. But you can also, I mean, you can also use the CO2 in both probably conventional and unconventional formations. So from an enhanced oil recovery, and I think North Dakota, a lot of folks probably don't, you know, appreciate necessarily that it, because it is the first unconventional oil play it has sort of these older, you know, the oldest unconventional wells. And so thinking about going in and enhancing those, whether it's through whatever enhanced oil recovery or a method you can think of, and that could be gas. I remember the the fire flooding stuff in, I think it was the bird bear formation in the, in, in, in the South part of, in the Southern part of, of North Dakota. But I was just thinking from a CO2 perspective of using it, there is interest, it seems like using CO2 for in increasing production, especially in some older, smaller producing wells, not necessarily in the Bakken or the Three Forks formations, but in, in older, more con conventional formations. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, enhanced oil recovery using CO2 is absolutely not new. Uh, decades of, of history right. in the oil and gas industry to, to make that work. And so, um, you know, what's what's kind of the, the weird dynamic in North Dakota is we, we do have uh, a CO2 source in North Dakota. We have a CO2 pipeline currently operating, but it's sending that CO2 up into to Canada, the Weyburn, Saskatchewan field. So they're using that CO2 for EOR up in that project. So folks in North Dakota that have looked at wanting to do enhanced oil recovery with CO2 have, have run into that challenge of not having the, the supply. You know, Denbury's addressing that here, even this month, starting construction on their CO2 pipeline to bring additional CO2 or new CO2 into the, the Bowman County area that you were just referencing, uh, where they're going to use that for enhanced oil recovery. Uh, going forward, there are a, a number of projects where folks are, are going to be producing CO2 in-state and then piping it west or to the Williston Basin for either sequestration or enhanced oil recovery. So we're going to see this space probably rapidly evolve here, you know, in the, in the coming years. You know, the, the EERC, for those that are not familiar with that group, check them out. As far as the experts on North Dakota, the geology and CO2, um, you know, I, I just pulled up a slide from, from their president here. You know, they were estimating that for the Bakken, in, in, in an unconventional resource like that, you know, 2 to 3.2 uh, billion cubic feet of, of CO2 uh, could be used, or sorry, 2 to 3.2 billion tons of CO2 uh, what could be used to, to produce an incremental 7 billion barrels of, of crude oil in North Dakota. So, I mean, there is tremendous amount of space. Our governor uh, in May put out the challenge that he wanted to see North Dakota become carbon neutral as a state and using that uh, Williston Basin as a way to bring CO2 from outside sources and use that asset for, uh, again, 
all the the options eor sequestration it's all on the table right now yeah i think that i think it's it there's a i think there's a massive amount of running room really appreciate that explanation there's a massive amount of running room for co2 in north dakota i think the demand is going to is going to grow as people get their footing with prices and and understand the infrastructure layout so i I personally think the CO2 side is going to be big, um, and I, I think it'll be particularly big on the in enhanced oil in, from a production side, both. And I actually think it will be used for for the unconventional formations in the Bakken and Three Forks as well. That may take a little time to get there, but I, I think that's there. So that's exciting from a production standpoint. And I would just note that I think it was Harold Ham who said recently that he only thought that 3%, it was 2 to 3% of the Bakken had actually been produced from a production standpoint. And it reminded me of just those, um, I think it was Lee Price who had, you know, those papers from the 1970s that you can't find anymore that I have printed out that are like hundred pages long, but talked about 70 billion barrels being in the Bakken. And this was, you know, decades and decades ago, but the reality is it kind of is this gift that keeps on giving. And, and as you're explaining of not just being able to sequester the CO2, but able to use it, um, it, it could be a state that really um, is able to sort of capture uh, several angles and and also help enable the state to continue producing a stable level of production for a long period of time. Yeah, and North Dakota, to their credit, to our legislature and Lynn Helms, I mean, they really got after this years ago. North Dakota became the first state to get primacy from the, the EPA to um, regulate within the state the, the sequestration and the disposal of, of carbon dioxide. And so um, there's incentives on the books that have been put in place. They've got uh, as many when, of the ducks in a row. When was that done? Do you know? The primacy? I, I don't. It's been at least five plus years ago, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's maybe one other state in the nation. So so some of the big projects are, you know, neighboring states that they don't have the geology and they don't have the regulatory certainty that North Dakota provides. Uh, so folks are looking at us for these opportunities. Right. Well, I know we're post the the hour mark, and I I just want I want to close up with two more things, just because this is a very you know somebody can listen to this and have a very comprehensive full circle thing on everything Wilson Basin. So I don't want to be remiss. We've talked about CO two. We've talked about um you know we've talked about the gas side. We we talked a little bit about hydrogen, but I want to fold this into you know this ESG perspective. And I don't want to push you on the regulatory side, but I really mean this more from you know the environmental social governance aspect from an investor pressure standpoint. You know, I, I really wanted to sort of just think of, you know, how has, uh, do you think about it all, at all from the North Dakota Pipeline Authority perspective? Does the state think about it at all from, you know, if you're thinking about, and I've talked about on the podcast, I've been very open with it about, you know, you may not be holding a, you know, if you're long in a long only portfolio and you, you're wanting to hold oily stocks, you know, Exxon and Chevron might not be those stocks anymore. And, but it makes me think a little differently. And I know folks have, have, you know, ragged on continental resources for a long time and whiting, you know, is the, the stocks that have been hurt. But truthfully, I mean, they're looking quite oily now. And it may be there's some some public companies in North Dakota that may actually fit um, this thing, especially if you're able to sort of have these, they're, they're, they're capturing this gas. Methane might be a question of um, that piece. And I don't know how the state of North Dakota is doing that. But from a ESG sort of methane perspective, how is the, how are you thinking about that? Or maybe this isn't in your purview, but is it is, is it something that the, the state's thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. So the state um, is is thinking about it. They do have folks that are, are working on the ESG and the investment side, typically through our Department of Commerce. Um, and so I do interface with them on, on that front. But, you know, from the midstream perspective, what I can say is that, again, we are seeing that shifting mindset, right? We're, we're seeing some companies talk about, you know, whether they go to a, a 
zero routine flaring type scenario or their their internal gas capture target is 95% or some other higher number and working with the midstream companies to say okay if we internally want to hit these guidance levels you know forget the 91% capture we want to be at 95 and and we want it reliably what has to happen on the midstream side what type of of pipe and compression and processing and so those are a lot of the discussions that are happening too um in the boardrooms around around the basin so it it is changing and we are seeing a different mindset as far as you know all all segments of that ESG uh, component so it, it is it is influencing decisions up here Ethan anything to add there yeah longer term i mean there's the the whole leave it in the ground movement which underlies the sort of most vehement leftward position um north dakota doesn't seem to be aligning either politically or in a regulatory fashion with that view. But how, how do you think about that movement? Is it, a, a, do you get around that or by, bypass that by say, like uh, I think Rusty Brazil argued today that you could have carbon neutral crude or carbon negative crude, for example. What's the, what's the bigger picture thinking there? Yeah. So, I mean, in North Dakota as a whole, I mean, it, it's an energy powerhouse. Yeah. I mean, there's other States like that, Wyoming, Texas, but uh, North Dakota as a whole, you know, going forward, uh, we're, we're long on the expectations that, that this resource is going to be developed, but it, it might not be developed in the same way it was 10 years ago, right? We, we might see a different type of, of energy development. It, it could still be fossil fuel driven, uh, but there will likely be carbon management strategies and different things occurring, not only for the oil and gas sector, but our, our lignite, you know, North Dakota's largest lignite producing state in the country. And so that we're already seeing plans coming together for carbon capture there. And so these things there, there's no pressure from a, a state perspective to to leave those products in the ground. It's produce them, uh, but do it in a way that the market will will want in the coming decades. And so we've created a new called the Clean Sustainable uh, Energy Authority. Um, I'm a non-voting member on that group. We're going to be meeting here for the first time this coming month. And so it's uh, North Dakota is is trying to position itself that for that long decades long view uh, to use all energy sources. We're still going to develop the, the renewables, the wind, we've got solar projects looking at North Dakota, uh, but then the fossil fuel, the traditional sectors, you know, how will those continue to evolve to meet, you know, the, the power needs at, at a grander scale? Yeah. And I would just say, you know, I think one of my perspectives of North Dakota and I had, had been up there, I really appreciated my trips and I haven't spent time. My, my dad and my uncle both worked up there during the winter. So I had heard about the intense, intense winters and, Really, that's kind of a, a, a badge of, you know, that's what I need to actually, I need to go up there during the 40 below and actually experience it to actually say I've been to North Dakota. But I will not no, be joining you. Uh, <laughs> you will not be joining me. I'll, ha- I'll happily go. But, you know, it reminds me a lot, though, and I mentioned this, like Norway and, and, and you know, North Dakota was founded by, by Scandinavians and you, you have this, this Scandinavian ancestry. So folks, one, can handle a really harsh winter. And two, you do live off, I mean, the whole state lives off, you know, you have coal, you have, you have ethanol, you have corn, you have uh, a robust, uh, I mean, you have a robust 
agriculture sector um, and you have oil and gas. So I was always impressed from and studying and cutting my teeth on it from 2010 onward, how the state really adapted and appreciated it. It wasn't that the state was new to oil and gas. It was new to the large volumes of it. But the state, very similar to the way I see Norway, sort of living off, you know, this is a resource rich state and and very impressively. And so I think from an ESG perspective, and, and again, I'm not I'm not poo-pooing the ESG side. I think it's it's great to try to reduce those those, you know, make do it in the most efficient and better manner. But I would like to know, and 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 I don't know if Rusty is doing the industry any favors by by pushing a sort of if he is indeed pushing a carbon neutral rhetoric or carbon negative rhetoric, is because the industry only produces from production, only produces one percent of US CO2 emissions. And so we're I think the industry is is being uh unfairly pointed at and and working really, really hard to reduce the reduce the CO2, which is great. But I don't know if every other industry like cement and other industries are are working as high and, and are being focused on nearly as much. Um, I, but I think about it from an investment standpoint and for the Wilson Basin as a whole, it is really positive because, you know, if it is about ESG and you are trying to reduce the, the, that carbon footprint, the state has a lot to offer in terms or production in the Wilson Basin has a lot to offer because the infrastructure and investment for all this stuff is coming with it. And so having a lower carbon barrel is sort of in the works, in addition to having barrels that are being, you know, actually utilizing this, this CO2 to actually enhance the production. So per, uh, from an analytical perspective, I think it's very positive. I also I also do see the state of North Dakota, I mean, with the infrastructure in place and being on private land, I think it's situated very, uh, it's very well to increase that growth in production outside of, especially outside of uh, federal land in the U.S. that is still, still does have a ban on, on leasing right now. Well, I think we probably have reached a, what I would call a natural stopping point. We've taken up a ton of Justin's time. And so let's wrap it up there, Trisha. Yes. So um, thank you. Is, thank you. Yeah. Thank you to Justin thank Krigstad, who's the director of the North Dakota Pipeline Authority. Thank you. And this has been, so this is episode 24. Today is Tuesday, August 3rd, 2021. This has been a full and all-encompassing uh, episode on everything Wilson Basin and North Dakota. We've been talking about getting Justin on the podcast for a while. Really, really appreciate having you, Justin. So thank you so much. And Justin, if, if folks want to reach out to you, I assume you have all the information. I, I know it's in North Dakota and I always put in NDPA WordPress, but what, what exactly, how can they best reach out to you? NorthDakotaPipelines.com right there. Okay. That'll, that'll get you to the website and all the information. So I'd love to hear from folks. If they've got feedback, thoughts, challenges, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Same and for us guys. Really look forward things to, to say about the, yeah, if you have positive things to say about the podcast, send them to Trisha, and you can send all the negative stuff to me because I can digest it a little bit better without. Oh, that's fine. Yell, I can without totally, yelling I can at totally the podcast hosts. <laughs> I can totally all right. handle. Thank all right. you very thank much, you Justin. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks.